Broadcasting from occupied territories, War the Flea Media, it's the Reality Dysfunction Podcast. A space where a diverse group of brown folk from across the nation explore the political experiences and social future of our Chicano Latino community. Control the narrative, resist the dysfunction. Hey everyone, uh, we're back this week. Uh, we have a very special guest. Uh, he'll introduce himself in a second, but in the meantime, uh, this is Dr. Ernesto Morales coming at you from the uh, Mid Mountains of Arizona in Prescott. I am Alexandra Lozada, and I'm coming to you from Brooklyn, New York. Juan Carlos Vega here, Boricua in the outside of DC. We're currently in Durwood, Maryland. Yeah, name's uh, Roberto Rodriguez, and I do go by Dr. Saintly, which means maíz, Dr. Maíz. And I actually got that title when I earned the PhD from a maestra, you know? Uh, anyway, I live right now, I'm living in Mexico. I'm on a research year. I think this whole COVID thing is all over the world. So whatever I'm going through here, like everybody else, you know, not traveling as much, but still traveling a little bit. But it's all writing for me, writing and research, what I'm doing right now. And I'm a professor at the University of Arizona. Dr. Seenley has a number of uh, publications, uh, books that are coming out here very soon. And um, we're hoping to get a chance to talk about those. For those of you who are familiar uh, with uh, Dr. Seenley's work, you know that he is the author of a, a very famous essay called Who Declared War on the Word Chicano that became part of a, a bigger book called The X and La Raza, which was uh, very popular in the 1990s and I think had a lot to do with the activism that uh, really was uh, propelled forward during that decade. I know that that's during the time of my undergraduate and things were hot across the country from uh, LA to, to Michigan. I mean, people were doing it. And so just to kind of kick this off, Dr. Saintly, I guess my first question to you is, who did declare war on the word Chicano? I personally think all of society did, you know, it always had. The way I came about writing that was that, I think you probably know, at that time, I was facing, um, well, I was in between trials. I had a criminal trial and a lawsuit trial. And when I had the criminal trial, I got arrested probably about over 60 times. And that's after I was almost killed by sheriffs in, in L.A., and when I left, I left for about two or three years. And when I came back, nobody was using the word Chicano anymore or Chicana. It was all Hispanic, you know? It even hurts to say it. But, yeah, that's what people were using. And, and you know, I, I know that there's a dynamic about the word Latino also, et cetera. But I can tell you from my own personal experience that they're not parallel in the sense that the reason that term was being used was because there was a lot of people from Central America, you know, and, and previous to that from South America. I'm talking political exiles, you know, people that had, had escaped wars. And so when they came, especially to, say, California or, or Southern California, there was a lot of mixture, so to speak. And so to be able to communicate with each other, I think the term Latino came about. It wasn't because people had uh, people were ashamed, not at all. The other one, definitely, you know, the, the H term, like I say, I even hate saying it, but that term absolutely was both shame, you know, as due to racism, as, as, it's all imposed and on and on and on. So who declared? I, I would say everybody from the media to education 
to the government and on and on. I think they just could not, I, th I think part of it, maybe it's just language possibly, but I think it represented something deeper because I think those of us that know the term know that it literally is an indigenous term. And I think that it's almost like, I don't think they like that idea. It's almost like we're supposed to be colonized, you know? We're supposed to all be good Boy Scouts, you know? Pay attention and do the flag thing. And I don't really think they they like that, you know? I think they like the concept of the the 1950s version of hat in hand, you know? Si, senor, you know? That's what they wanted. And Chicano represented that rebellion. Even, I, I like the word savage nowadays, you know? During the impeachment, they're talking about the cavalry, you know? I'm like, yeah, we're the savages, you know? In other words, that th this society still has that upside-down mentality. We're native, we've always been native, and they've, they've taken that from us. It isn't just a word, you know? It's like people call it detribal. It's not detribalized. It's just literally, uh, what's that? There's, a, there's several terms you can use, but, you know, genocide comes to mind, either physical or cultural, even linguistic. I think this actually would come under what people call linguistic, what do they call it? Epistemicide. I think they call it, I don't use it much. No, Epistemicide. That makes, yeah, that makes sense. Epistemicide. Yeah. yeah. The destruction yeah, of so knowledge. Anyway, so that, yeah. That's that I would say is that it was society that just didn't accept us. That's why, like I say, might as well give us that status they gave us in the beginning. They thought we were savages, so they treat us that way still. As you know, a lot of my work now today is on police violence. It's like, why? Because they treat us less than human. We're not seen as as, as human. So I think it's, it's all tied together, if you ask me. I am not an, an expert on what's in the U.S. Constitution, but I'm pretty sure that people are still referred to as savages in some way or, you know, because, you know, the territories, you know, the current territories of the U.S., they're, you know, the, the content of the laws that refer to the territories and how to manage them totally presents them and misrepresents them as savages and less than, you know, the, you know, what it is, the, the white control and supremacy in this country, you know, which is to this day and, but it's the same thing, you know, and I, and I think, you know, but I also think that the term Latino, Latina, Latinx, however, V, you know, whatever we want to, you know, call it, right? I think it also, you know, so the age term for sure, you know, that's like, that's like age for colonization, right? And we're going to call you the, the H word. And I sometimes I think, is that hijo puta or what, you know? Because that's, but I love that. I don't like that nobody says the fully H word, but I'm like, man, <laughs> right? But what I'm thinking is that the word, I think of Latinx, Latino, Latina, and such, I think of Latin America, right? And I don't think of Spain. I don't think of, of Portugal. I don't think of anything else, but I think of, you know, anything from the Rio Grande South, right? And, you know, that's how I, I feel that there's a connection to that. Whatever connection the U.S. system 
that still classifies us as Hispanic in the U.S. Census, you know, and everything else, you know, that's a different, you know, context and the same, right? They, they don't want us, they still want us to be the H's, you know, but I call it hijo puta, whatever. <laughs> so, yeah. Dr. Seenly, I was wondering too, you know, um, one, I really appreciate you taking time out to uh, come on and, and have this conversation with us. I think it's super important. You know, there's so many things that have happened in the last couple of years where in your original writing, uh, you know, with the who declared war on Chicano, I mean, like one of the things that you really do is you you put white society or white settler society pretty much on blast, which I think rightfully so you did that too. Let me let me be really clear about that. But in the last couple of years, you know, it, it seems like more and more it's coming from our own community in terms of who's really, you know, declaring war on this word and, you know, the sort of the ideology that goes along with uh, with it. And and I think, you know, just to be really, you know, clear also, too, I think it's really fascinating the research that you're doing around maize culture and how that really just kind of brings the the whole thing together and really, you know, allows us to to see the similarities as, as opposed to the differences between uh, indigenous people in the Americas. And I don't know, I was just wondering if, you know, maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Well, I, I, I yeah, I think you hit it right on the nose. We've probably spent, probably, it's like if we have 24 hours to speak on a topic, we've probably spent 20 per, uh, 20 of those hours speaking about what to call ourselves. Yeah. In other words, like, damn, I mean, what is that about? You know, remember a lot of my, my research or a lot of my work is related to police violence, law enforcement violence. And to me, I get very frustrated because it's like people are again, X, Y, Z, whatever, instead of like, Hey, Jose Valenzuela just got killed, you know? And like, is anybody going to like step forward? You know, and I'll be brief about this, but in my research on, on violence, I we found, or I, I did actually, 275 Raza got killed this past year, in the year 2020. That's the highest ever of any group, to my knowledge. Uh, you know, I think Raza average-wise gets killed about 200 people per year. Uh, African-Americans about 230 per year. You know, about th- there's about 30 difference. Most people don't know that. But this past year was 275. I mean, off the charts, who knows about that, you know? And the point being is, I, you know, I've probably heard about all these Latinx debates, like, again, using a scale from 1 to 10, probably like 70% of the time on that, but hardly anything related to our literal existence. But it is all related to what you're saying. You know, like, I, I was reading about how, see, the way Chicano studies or Raza studies came about was the idea that we were created in 1848. And then a few years later, that Chicana academics pushed it back to 1519. Now, you mentioned the topic of organic intellectuals. Well, I got out of the university in 76 and just became a writer for the most part. And so I, I think I skipped all the other debates that happened between 76 and when I went back to school. Because to me, in the writing that my wife and I had done at the time, we interviewed elders from everywhere, you know, from Puerto Rico, from 
Americas, Central America, South America, the U.S., Mexico, of course, and the idea that we were made from maíz, you know, for me at least, it, it became a dominant idea. But also there's something that goes with that because it's beyond like a nation state identity. You know, it's literally who we are. And for people to tell us that we were created in 1848 or 1519 is to negate that which is within us. You know, our, you know, people say we are what we eat. I mean, what are, we've been eating for thousands of years, the same food, yeah. corn, beans, squash, chile, etc. And at the same time, I mean, once you establish that connection, it's like the name itself is not the most relevant thing in the world. It's literally centering yourself, knowing where you're from. But at the same time, there's something else that's really important. And that's, I think you were alluding to that. That is how we live our lives. Meaning that we, you know, I, I became a runner myself. And with the whole Rasa study struggle here in Arizona, and I think it was not, it was the year, no, God, what was it? 2009. Yes, I became, started and I became a runner for about 12 years or so. And we use the symbolism of the, the footprints. And it's the idea that like, it's not what you say, it's the footprints that you leave behind. In other words, it's how you live your life. Because one thing is to intellectualize who we are, you know, and then this is what we learned from elders, you know? So if you learn about respect, then you need to live that way, not simply say it and then be super arrogant, attacking people that disagree with you, you know, over a name or who we are, who we're not, and on and on. You know, because it's almost like, what does it matter what, who we are or what we call ourselves if you go around like like an inquisitor, <laughs> believe me, and you know the topic. Yeah. You know, I think some of us in, in your era, we used to call that the masquetus, you know? You know, the, the, soy más que tú, you know, I'm more native than you are, or I'm whatever. So the point being is that, like, it, it, it isn't enough to know who we are, to know our languages. It's to live, you know, the way elders have taught us to live, you know? And I think maybe 50 years ago when the Chicano movement first burst out, uh, or the other movements, Black Power or the American Indian movement, in that same era, I don't really think we had that consciousness. We were still trying to show or prove that we were from here. Mm -hmm. If anything, that's always been a part of, you know, society doesn't want us, they don't like us, and neither they deport us or they kill us or they neutralize us. So anyway, I think I might have gone a little too long there, but that's my answer. Alex, do you, do you have something you want to say? Yeah, you know, I've just been thinking a lot on what we're all saying. And I think of one of the topics that we talk a lot about is our political representation here in the U.S. So if we cannot agree on an umbrella term for all of us, whether we're new to the U.S., or we've just been here since the beginning of time, like how is it that we come together at, to to join, to become a political force with, with the amount of people that we have here that, that look like us, right? And I think beyond 
what we call ourselves, right? Like we all look the same. So it doesn't, sometimes it may not even matter because we all look the same, right? It, it doesn't matter. You know, when police or whomever, white people talk about us, they, they don't know the difference, right? They just think, oh, well, you're brown or you're little and brown, you'll be fine, <laughs> right? So you all speak Spanish, like what's the big deal, right? And I, I do think it's a big deal, but so I don't know what your, some of your thoughts are and, you know, in your journeys, you know, as an elder, I mean, I, I, when I look at you, I think of you as one of our elders. So in your perspective, like how, how do you see us coming together as a political force, especially now? And I feel we're in this kind of, we're at a turning point. So, yeah. you know, I, I think that maybe we're not too far from perhaps finding that umbrella term you're talking about, but I don't think we're right. We're, not, we're there yet. So, you know, like I use the word raza, you know, because I've, and I know not everybody likes it or agrees with it, et cetera, but I, I know that it's a little bit more inclusive than if I only said Chicano, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think you use one word that I do like. And, and again, I know everybody doesn't like it, but, uh, you know, when we're counting right now, all the people that have been killed by police, we're using the term brown, you know? And one of the young women who I'm working with, she, I told her about the concept of brown uprising. Oh my gosh, she fell in love with that term. <laughs> and I think that the, the Raza database that we're compiling, I think we're going to probably create something like kind of like brown uprising and then there'll be sub projects, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, some people will say, well, yeah, but we're not all brown. I go, well, look, not all blacks are black. In other words, if you know African-Americans, there's a whole range, right? Right from very light to very black. Right. And so nobody's debating that. I mean, in other words, it's a concept, right? right? Just like black power or black, black is beautiful, you know? So I think we do have that parallel. And I do, even within our own families, you know, they're lighter, you know, I'm, I think I'm the darkest in my family, but as, as you know, in, in some families, you go from light to dark, et cetera. And to me, the idea of brown kind of covers that. And, you know, anyway, I, I just wish... Somebody's going to probably come up with that uh, that universal term, the brown, or something that everybody agrees with, et cetera. I mean, I, you know, personally, like I always, my work is about red, black, and brown. And personally, I think that's all within me. Maybe not everybody is like that, you know, but at least for me. And I do that because all of us, the, these three groups, we all do have something very much in common. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is violence since 1492. You know, there's no debate about that. It's been nonstop and it's all based on the idea that we're not human or not human enough, you know? So uh, I know some people use specific terms, but like say um, a lot of the native terms, you probably know this, most native terms mean the people, you know? Um if, if that's the case, it's almost like, why don't we just say gente? Then? You know? I mean, that's what gente means, people, right? Seems like it, but I don't know. I, I sometimes crack up about this. I say, God, I, I think that they've given us this so-called debate so that we can kill each other, you know? In other words, and then we can't even do real work because we're busy trying to fight who's, you know, who's got the X or the Y or where the X goes or where the O goes or the, you know? It's almost like, and meanwhile, COVID, right? which communities are being hit the hardest, same three, you know, every ind- index is the same thing, you know, red, black, and brown. And I, I insist on all three because the reason I say that is because it is all three 
And I don't want to say only this group or only that group. No, it's it's the three of us, and we all have that in common, violence, et cetera. You know, part of the work that, that I do, and I, I'm part of a group that's doing this, is the violence against women. My murdered and missing indigenous women has gotten a little bit of attention. But if you know the topic, it's murdered and missing indigenous, African-American, and migrant women all have the same characteristics and it lines up with the concept of law enforcement violence, state violence. And what, what it is, is the judicial system. Hmm. That is, there's zero investigations. Nobody investigates. So if you don't investigate, you can't have a prosecution. No prosecution, no trial. And even if you were to get to a trial, who's going to win? You know. In other words, it, it, they're almost identical, the two topics. So that's what I'm saying. I think part of it. And, you know, I am part of that. I can't tell everybody's age from, from just looking, but I am part of that generation where those three groups did work together. You know, the Black Power Movement, American Indian Movement, and Chicano Movement, Puerto Rican Movements, uh, and, of course, peoples from South America. They had their own thing because of all the <laughs> all the dictatorships and on and on. A lot of us did, did grow up that way. I think it's only been this generation where I kind of seen it a little different, you know, where it's not it's not like the way we fought in the 60s 70s you know just to clarify i'm 27. <laughs> you, you invert the numbers <laughs> yo round 50 i am proud of be 50 year old that's about how we are around here 50 late, late yeah. 40s 50s yeah late, late 40s 50s so mm -hmm. i yeah. think that maybe we're the we're the next generation like right after you guys so mm -hmm. yeah. i know yeah we were all born in the late 60s early 70s that's when mm -hmm. we were born so 71 yeah i think that i mean for myself these these conversations are are really important but in, in like you just said i mean if we had 24 hours to talk about it 20 of it would be spent you know has been spent talking about what we call ourselves and i just personally have gotten to the point in my life where I just cannot continue to have that conversation with yeah. people anymore. It's just, it's exhausting. And the other thing about it is that really, I, I just find a little irritating is for some reason, every new generation thinks that they invented this conversation. And I'm just like, how do you guys not see that this is that this is like a millstone around our community's neck, you know, this arguing about you know, endlessly about this. And so, and when we first started this conversation, I was under the mistaken impression that uh, that book, The Excellent La Rasa, was being released by itself. And so um, in our pre-conversation, for all those who are listening, uh, Dr. Seenley filled me in on that, right? He spilled the tea for me, as the kids say. So actually, uh, what I was hoping, Roberto, was that you could talk a little bit about your book projects that, that you have sure. coming up, because I think that those are are super important. Yeah, and so let me just touch on X and La Raza, because it's in that other book, and I'll mention it in a second. But but remember, so I, I wrote that the uh, Who Declared War on the Word Chicano because it had disappeared when I came back to L.A. So about, I don't remember, a number of years later, uh, a lot of Raza, a lot of people in the movement kept asking me if they could reprint that article, Who Declared War on the Word Chicano? And I 
to me, it was like a no brainer. Like, well, sure, of course. And then I remember another time somebody goes, Hey, we, we reprinted your thing, you know, is that okay? And I go, of course it's okay. But if you're asking for permission, usually do that before, not after. <laughs> and I said, but do not worry about it. Cause that's fine with me. So that's when I started to know that there was a lot of interest in it. And you remember this, that these probably 10 years had gone by. And then I think the ones that did the most work on this was, uh, Tierra out of Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, they reprinted like tens of thousands, you know, and put, made it like a little pamphlet. But I remember when I, when I, not them, but other people, they were using it like a, na- like a nationalist thing, you know? And I, and I said, no, I, I, I'm, I've never been a nationalist and I didn't write it for that reason. I wrote it because I didn't like that the word was eliminated. In other words, I was part of an organization from Guatemala for years. So in other words, I'm not, I don't have anything against Central Americans or South Americans or from the Caribbean. I go, we're, you know, I always had that idea. We're all one people, you know, and, you know, obviously with differences. But to me, that that's not, not that wasn't a bad thing. The people were using it that way. They were having wars, you know, against Central Americans, et cetera. And I go, no. Nah. So I said, well, you know what? I'm going to have to write a, a follow up. So that's how the X and La Raza came about to clarify that. And I actually had another one, which was called Codex de Muanchan on becoming human. And they were both with the same idea that who we are and our identity is about our spirit, not the literal name that we call ourselves. Because as again, what we've been talking about right now, everybody's debating, fighting, et cetera. And I go, you know, our spirit doesn't have a name or maybe it has many names, you know? So that's, that's what that, that was about. And apparently that seems to have the, the biggest interest of all the things that I've written about, people keep asking about that. Now, part of it, again, I think the, the Who Declared War, that's in the new book that's coming out this summer. So this summer, the, this book, it's, it's called 50, write, Writing 50 Years Amongst the Gringos. And um, it's actually más o menos, 50 year, writing 50 years más o menos amongst the gringos. Because by the time it gets published, I think, well, I, I will have been writing about 49 and a half years so that's why we called it Muscle Menos, you know? Uh, yeah, I started writing it uh, in uh, 1972, La Gente newspaper out of UCLA. And I started writing precisely because Ruben Salazar was killed down the street from where, where I lived. I, I, I was, uh, there's only a few houses on Whittier Boulevard. Mine was one of them. So I lived in the alley. And so when the moratorium happened, it happened right down the street. And I remember we, me and my brothers, we actually went to the silver dollar, but the cops wouldn't let us too close, you know? But I mean, so for me, that, that Im- impacted me heavily, you know, the, the death of Ruben Salazar. And I believe that's why I decided to become a writer. So this, this, uh, this book, 50 Years, is being published by uh, Aslan Libre Press out of uh, San Antonio. Normally, I publish out of uh, the University of Arizona Press. And, and I, I would have published that one too there, but I knew Juan from years ago when I was hiding from the cops. <laughs> he was a danzante and him and his wife became publishers and they asked me and I, I kind of hesitated because I thought like, well, you know, as a scholar, you, you know, an academic press is a good thing and et cetera, et cetera. But then I thought like, but you know what? They represent what I also believe in, you know? And technically, I don't need permission. I don't need tenure. I got it already. So I said, let's do it, you know? <laughs> so we've been doing 
uh, we've been doing it. We've been going at it. And uh, it, it should be out. I don't know what month, but it's, it'll be the summer. And it's probably good that it's a little ways down because of the, the whole pandemic thing, you know. But in 1972, I began writing for La Gente. And a lot of what I wrote technically is still things that are happening to this day, you know, from that violence, you know, from immigration and, uh, and even the concept of Chicano studies. I think that was one of my first articles. But I, I'm real proud about another article that I wrote in those days. And that was about I compared immigration from the U.S. and Mexico, you know, to Europe. You know, and I remember when I wrote it, it was like everybody was like, whoa, you know, people hadn't heard about immigration in Europe, you know, coming from the Middle East or coming from Africa. And I was doing a comparison. And so that kind of, you know, I, I kind of got a name from that. You know, that was kind of cool. Uh, but after after I graduated from college, I started writing fiction. And my first fiction story I ever wrote won a, a writing contest, a California uh, statewide writing contest. And so I kind of figured, well, I guess that's what I want to do. I'm going to write fiction. And I never really got into poetry, but I wrote some fiction. And then uh, about three years after I graduated, or two years, I think, I, I joined uh, Lowrider Magazine because they, they cut out summer school. I was going to teach summer school, but Proposition 13 cut it out. So I, I helped them for three months for the summer. But then I really liked it a lot. <laughs> and so I, I just said, I'm not going to go back to teach. I'll come back later. And anyway, so uh, so I got into Lowrider Magazine. So I worked there from 78 through about, or 77 through about 81. And that's, of course, when I was almost killed by cops in 79 and had those two trials that lasted seven and a half years. So, but I never stopped writing, you know, so I stayed and then continued writing. I became a column. Actually, I became a columnist at Lowrider Magazine. But in my mind, I didn't even think of it as column writing. I just thought that's what I do at the magazine. But in, I think it was 84 or thereabouts, I started writing for Eastern Group Publications in LA and then La Opinion. And again, so I've never stopped writing. So I, and all that's, you know, selection. My, I have a friend that helped me with this and several actually. And I've actually written several thousand pieces of writing. You know, it's hard to think of maybe hundreds, but no, I actually have several thousand going back from 72 to the present. And so, so obviously it's not everything, but it's a selection of, and it ranges from, again, from fiction to political writing to uh, articles and books, you know. And I actually write something pe people call Huehuetlatoli. I actually, that was part of one of my books, uh, the, my Maiz book. Apparently my work was so big that they told me I had to knock off a hundred pages. And at the very end, it was almost like I was just over by five pages. And I, I just got lazy instead of like knocking off a word here and a word there, because I had already done that. Uh, I just said, hey, let's take, just take that one out. That was the way with Latoli. And I regretted it because my Maiz book, which uh, you read dissertation part of it. Of course, the later part, you know, obviously it becomes different, but, you know, kind of like uh, it develops. But uh, the Huevet Latoli is something I'm very proud of. And I, just like the Maiz book, you know, I, in, in that book, there's a creation story and I, ch I changed it. I changed the creation story 
And I thought people would question me about it, you know? And I said, you know, because they might say, like, well, you're not Nahua, you know? Actually, I do have family that, that is, you know, in Morelos. But I personally was not raised in the Nahua tradition, et cetera, et cetera. But the creation story is about the little ants, the ants that bring the corn to the people. And and I changed it because, like, the, the ants initially said no. And so when I asked uh, different elders as to, like, why the ants said no, they go, oh, we don't know. But they, uh, this is just how we learn the story. So when I said to myself, well, I'm going to change. I'm going to give the answer as to why the ants said no. And in the end, um, after, well, it was very simple. The ants thought that the uh, humans would hoard it, sell it, and then genetically modify it, you know, or monster corn. And I actually, when it first came out, I, I, I uh, taught that to little kids, three years old to eight years old, Mexico Academy, and they all understood it. It was written for a college audience, and yet little three-year-olds to eight-year-olds, in fact, they performed it as a play. Later, I had thought to myself, what if, what if people question me, like saying, how dare you take a creation story and change it? And I said, wait a minute. You know, I've, I've been eating maize. I've been eating tortillas my entire life. Frijoles, you know, calabaza, chile. That is my culture. You know, I'm not taking from anybody's culture. That is part of my culture. And therefore, as a storyteller, I have the right to change it, which is what all, story to all storytellers do. You change, you add, you take. Because, you know, in the end, you know what a story is about? That's why I talked about the concept of being human, is that it's the teacher's values, you know? It's not really, doesn't matter if, it's, if a story is about an eagle or a dog or whatever. It's always about teaching values, you know, how to be and become better human beings. That's why nobody objects to that. So to this day, I've had nobody tell me that I didn't have a right to do that. And that's why, and that's why I now tell people, I said, no, you, you know, even if you don't know the language, you know, if you don't, if you weren't raised traditionally, or if you're not a danzante, et cetera, et cetera, it doesn't matter, you know? We're all human beings and we all have the right to speak. Anyway, so all of that, you know, um, well, again, on that, on that particular book, you know, the, the 50 years book, it's, so it's a whole, all selection of all the 50 years of writing. Um, I actually, I'm writing today, I finished translating my Maiz book. Um, and then a friend of mine actually translate and I do the editing. So we're translating my other book now, the Yolki book. That's the one on violence. And then I have three uh, young adult literature books coming out in, in the in the winter. That's why I'm saying I'm on a roll now. <laughs> wow, you are, bro. You are. On, you are on a roll. Dang. Good. Yeah. Don't stop. Yeah. Don't stop. We need. Don't stop. Go crazy. Don't stop. Because if we don't tell our own story, exactly. It is pulled with us being like mm -hmm. these savage victims, right? Mm -hmm. so, <laughs> well, you know, my family comes from Colombia, right? And so I think about you know just arepas that we eat. You know, choclo, which is like a larger kernel of corn. I love choclo, right? And then like chicha, my grandmother loved to drink chicha and chicha is kind of like a drink that is made from corn. It's like, I call it Colombian moonshine. Yeah, I, thought, I, I knew it from Peru, but yeah, or yeah. yeah. You know, I, one thing I forgot is the third, I see I have a trilogy from the Arizona University of Arizona Press. The, and that's, I'm working on that too right now. And that one is called Smiling Brown. Uh, I think it's the longer title is Smiling Brown Tinte de bronce, people color the earth. 
and and with this trilogy, they're all related. The Maiz book, the Yorkie book on violence, and Smiling Brown. And the the book on uh, Smiling Brown, I've gotten about 100 people from around the country, or more than 100, to tell their stories when they were little kids. The idea is that those ideas, you know, later when we become adults, it becomes racial profiling. But when we're little kids, we don't understand those things, you know? We just know that even, even you know, this is really weird, but this affects people literally as they're being born. That probably even, probably even in the womb. But like, you remember, like, at least I know for sure Mexican culture, when the baby's born, if they come out light, you know, it's almost like, let's declare a national holiday if they're light, you know? Oh my God. It's like everybody over of the hundred people that wrote the majority, that's the number one story. And the second story where, you know, one and two is a story about trying to change the color of our skin. Meaning like, I remember when I was probably about, I probably was about seven years old. Like I'm, I'm guessing, you know, might, I might've been five or six. I don't know. But I remember that the, the that we didn't call it racism in those days, but that that hate, that hate against Mexican people was so intense. And a lot of it had to do with color. Language too, but a lot of it was color. That I remember used to, I used to take showers with my eyes closed and I would scrub and scrub and scrub. And then I would open my eyes and I'd be like, you know, I'd be like, oh man, I'm still, I'm still brown. <laughs> you know? And uh, imagine a little kid doing that. I actually got a story from a man that's in his seventies. And he said that when he was little, that he overheard his parents talk about Clorox, how Clorox whitens. And so that he took a bath in Clorox and it didn't work. And so he got Brillo pads and scrubbed and scrubbed and still didn't work. And then I said, well, then, then what happened? He goes, I just decided to be a Mexican. I go, I, I didn't try to change my color anymore. <laughs> but those two topics, for example, I mean, they're, in other words, it's a common experience. And, and I, you know, as an academic now, I've read tons of work, but on the topic of color and testimonio, it's almost AWOL. It's MIA. Uh, you hear it in poems. You hear research, uh, you know, research on color and television. But in terms of the testimonio, you, you know why it's almost like, what is, there's a term for this, um, uh, taboo. You know why this topic is taboo? Because when you talk about color, it's usually the those closest to us, meaning parents, siblings, you know, um, extended family, yeah. neighbors, friends, schoolmates. In other words, those closest to us. And sometimes people that are lighter are, are not conscious of this because I know two sisters that are like, one's brown, one's light. And, uh, the one that's light tells me we never grew up that way she goes if you don't believe me ask my sister I asked the sister and she was almost like she almost had like a triple heart attack because I go why are you even asking me this you know she so she told like a horror story about growing up and the whole issue of color so and I think the reason uh, and people I think are careful but some sometimes it is it's the grandmother it's the mother it's the dad or you know it's somebody close to us and people don't want, you know, why would you want to attack your own parents? You know, So that's why I think a lot of times that those ideas haven't gone out there. When I teach this topic, 
um, a lot, a lot of my students, the ones that are light, they're the ones that are, they're the first ones to raise their hand, you know, and they're the ones that are going to tell me the story about how it doesn't affect, uh, or rather how they're the most affected and on and on. Anyway, uh, but no, I initially I started with the bias of saying, no, I, I don't want to hear your story. I want to hear the story of those that have been silenced, you know. But then I realized, like, I have a compa, and I overheard him talking about how he raised his children. And again, they're mixed. They're light and brown. Oh, it was the most awesome explanation I heard. And I said, that's we need that story, too, about how to raise the children correctly, you know. So anyway, that's what I that's my my third the part of the trilogy of the with the University of Arizona Press. After that, something that you probably remember, uh, Todd and that, uh, Ernesto, and that's what Patti and I were doing a generation ago about those maps. Yeah, I don't know if you remember Arizona that. Maps. Yeah, so, oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we'll probably get back to that. You know what? And the reason we'll get back to that is because that's what everybody seems to want. That yeah. is, we were both pursuing the concept of origins and migrations, and through elders. She was guided towards medicine. I was guided towards maize. In other words, that's the story of the continent, if you can call it that. In other words, almost all peoples have that story from the, the islands to South America. The only place that doesn't have those stories or that connection is the coldest regions, you know, like Alaska or something. But for the most part, that's, uh, that's where we were guided, maize and medicine. And the concept of the maps with Aslan on there or the origin of the Aztecs, to us, that became very secondary. However, it's still primary to most people because of the Mexican flag, I, I would think. And so, I, I, you know, we've decided we'll, we'll go back to that. Uh, it's important. But it, in my opinion, that, that maíz is like, that's like 100 times more important. And I think a lot of people do understand that already. But I think there's a there's a power in maps, you know. It's almost like a, something different. It's not. Uh, um, I mean, I, I was trying to think of another word like magical, but it's, I don't mean magical. But there's something special about a map that when you see something, if you see something about that Mexican Indians left Salt Lake to found their empire, if you see something like that in a map from 1804 or 1729, it'd be like what? But there's over 200 maps like that that goes from the mid-1800s all the way to the 1500s. And, and like I said, see, the reason that that, wasn't, that didn't become our priority after, you know, after we did some work is because that was one migration story. It was the dominant migration story of the Mexica. But just like in the U.S. that has over 500 native nations, same thing with Mexico. Mexico had hundreds of nations. The reason the, the Mexica migration story became the most important is because of the War of Independence, you know. And after the independence, they used the, the imagery of the Mexica, you know. But, I mean, that the, the, the Aslan story is not about the Maya, as, as an example, you know. It's not the Totonac story and on and on and on. But it's still important, and because people want it, we're going to do it. Because I think people I think people want that. They thirst they thirst to see those those uh those maps and they are quite amazing. Yeah. Um, you know, and there's a lot more about that, but you know, we'll stop there for the moment. I mean, I love the concept of the maps because beyond the political boundaries that we know today, so you were just saying with like Chocolo, right? You think of it as Peruvian, but when I think about it and I think about my indigenous peoples, I think about my African peoples, 
right? Mm -hmm. That's the Andean region. That's like near, yeah. right? It's not about like Colombia, Venezuela, or Ecuador, or Bolivia, right? It's just like we're from the Andes, and that's who we are. And and I think looking at those maps, and I don't know if you've seen uh, John Leguizamo, he did that Latin history for morons, and he talks about how this kind of community existed that we may not think about it in that way, but like the Aztecs, the Incas, the Mayans, right? The Chipchas from like Colombia, the, you know, he did a good job. He did a really good job. I yeah. love it. Yeah. It's for morons. For morons. Yeah. 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 Very simple so that people get it. Because as you were saying, Cindy, the same thing applies in the Caribbean region, right? We don't think of just the Taino or the Caribes or the Caribs. It's the Arawak Indians that were covering all the Caribbean region and the basins with South in Central America, right? And it's the same conversations, no it's matter where, yeah. what part of the... Of years ago, right? Yeah, yeah. All cousins when you really think about it. And, and the constant erasure of those uh, identities, no matter what they were called, right? But it's the constant erasure of those identities and the importance of having writers like you that don't stop writing about those, about our stories because you know in Puerto Rico it's quite interesting there's this white woman she's been lived there for a long time and she writes but she wrote about a giraffe in Puerto Rico and I'm like okay for children's literature and I'm like of all the god you know the animals that you can talk about in Puerto Rico a giraffe okay white lady that's cool but then you have Yolanda Arroyo Pizarro writing about negritude, writing about hair, writing about our stories. And, you know, I, I, she's like you. She doesn't stop writing. And her, the creative process is needed nowadays because the erasure of our identities is stronger than ever, you know. Well, you know, I'm, I'm going to go back to the idea of both map and identity, and that's and I'll be very brief, because, like I said, there's something really special about maps. But so we're going to finish that project. But I want my idea has always been to create a three dimensional map, or what do they call it, hologram, a hologram map, and that's the map of maize. You see, like I think you probably know, maize is a Taino word, isn't it? It's from the Caribbean, and and so. It's the, it's the entire North, Central, South, and the Caribbean. So to create a, ma a map of maize, because see, it's like we, we're, we're almost like looking for like buried treasure type of thing, you know? Like, where's the evidence, you know? Where's the proof that we were connected or that we were here? I'm like, literally, the maize is the proof because maize cannot grow by itself. And my maize was created in Southern Mexico and spread for thousands of years in every direction. I was in Cahokia in East St. Louis, and and the, the guy explaining the pyramid over there was talking about how they had no connection with the South. And I had just read the sign that said that this was the biggest cornfield on the continent, and they meant like the U.S. and above. And, and I said, like, uh, how did the maize get here? I go, what do you mean? I go, well, you said there's no connection to the South. I said that maize was created in Southern Mexico 7,000 years ago. How did it get here? And of course, he didn't know what the hell he was talking about. So I had to explain. I said, it can't grow by itself. It can't move by itself. That means that 
if the maize ended up in the Caribbean, you know, if it ended up in the Yucatan, that's probably I got there from the Yucatan. But then, and if it's in Peru, if it's in the Andes, if it's in New York, Canada, that means humans took it, you know? Humans, it's a technology. It, and I think most scientists, most biologists think it's the most, uh, what's that word? Um, like the most scientifically advanced concept, you know, for humans from that era, it's the only crop that was created by human beings. And so like, so if, if this maize is found in Canada, it's almost like, uh, yeah, that means we, we're connected, you know? If it's in the Andes, we're connected. All of our cultures are different, but we do share some, you know, it's like they call it a germinational seed. You know, we have something in common and almost all peoples, the, the, the introduction of maize or the creation of maize is very sacred to most people. You know, the, the story of how they got the maize, it, it's the commonality. So that's why I want to make a map of maize. But we'll make a map of, we'll do a book on the other the other maps and all that. Because again, that's what everybody wants. But I really, I really, that's my big project in the near future, the, the hologram map. That way they can see what kind of corn is where and all that, you know? This is the reality dysfunction. <laughs>